I didn't get the sense that a lot of Russians would take the Trans-Siberian just for fun, just to be on the train. I met a Russian girl in Portugal who, and I told her about this trip and she basically said, yeah, I, I don't understand why foreigners love the Trans-Siberian so much. She had spent one night on the train and she said it was the most miserable night of her life. And I was asking her what happened and she, she basically said, I, I don't want to tell you because I don't want to scare you away from it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today is part two of a double episode about Russia's iconic Trans-Siberian train. The previous episode, as you might recall, was the wild story of my own experience on the train back in 1999. Today's episode focuses on what it's like to take the Trans-Siberian in 2018. And to learn more about this, I talked with writer and editor Jonathan Arlen, who made the journey earlier this year. Jonathan is a fellow Kansan and author of a 2017 book called Mountain Lines, which recounts a 400-mile walk through the French Alps. He's also written about his Trans-Siberian journey, most notably in an essay for Tablet magazine called Off the Rails in Bijan, which recounts his experiences in the Jewish Autonomous Oblast of Siberia. I've added a link to that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Jonathan took the traditional west-to-east route of the Trans-Siberian, starting in Moscow, whereas I went in the opposite direction on what is technically the Trans-Mongolian spur of the train. I actually entered Europe for the first time ever on that trip by going over the Ural Mountains. Now, the Trans-Siberian and the Trans-Mongolian are actually part of a web of train routes that interconnect Eurasia, as Jonathan points out. Jonathan also notes that despite the title of this podcast, there is no such thing as a Trans-Siberian Express. That's not the name of the train, and in fact, the journey itself is quite slow, all things considered. You'll learn a lot about the Trans-Siberian in this episode of the podcast, and John and I start by talking about how it's the stuff of bucket lists, and how regardless of whether or not you subscribe to the concept of bucket lists, the Trans-Siberian is, inarguably, a classic overland journey. Let's listen in. I tend not to think about travel in, in a lot of uh, ways like a bucket list, but the Trans-Siberian is, is definitely one of those things. Yeah, well, actually, even the, the idea of bucket list is sort of, it's, it's a vocabulary that's come in to the way we talk in the last 10 years, maybe. So when I took it, I wasn't thinking in terms of bucket list. I, knew, I just knew it was a great world journey. And right, it's, right. It's, it's not like something like Machu Picchu or Uluru either. You don't take your selfie in front of it. You have to get on the train and experience it. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny in a lot of ways like that. And I'm thinking back to before I was actually on it. It's funny that it's, it is a, yeah, there's not much to do. I mean, it's sort of like you get on a train and that's it. So, so a lot of it for me was the curiosity about what people like about it so much, you know, why, why is it such an iconic thing to do, uh, travel wise? What, what am I missing? that nobody's been able to explain to me about why it's so cool to do the Trans-Siberian. There's three major routes. My, the one I took was from east to west, actually. It's technically the Trans-Mongolian. Uh, there's also the Trans-Manchurian. But you mm-hmm. took the straight-up train all the way to Vladivostok. Am I correct? That is correct. I took it uh, all the way from Moscow to Vladivostok. Um, it seemed to me like the... Uh, long, well, I think it is the longest, the Beijing one might be a little bit longer, but, um, yeah, it seemed like the, the simplest, the simplest way to do it was to get on and stay on. (laughs) 
And, and really all of these routes are really bridge routes that connect to other rail networks. And again, we'll get to that a little bit later, but you started in Portugal or London or something, didn't you? Yeah, I started in Portugal. So I took, uh, I took trains from Portugal across Europe, and then I connected to the, the Trans-Siberian in, in Moscow. And I guess it's worth pointing out that there really isn't technically no, um, well, there's no Trans-Siberian Express, which is what a lot of people call it and what I'm sure I've called it at some point. Um, and there really isn't even a Trans-Siberian, officially a Trans-Siberian train in Russia. It's just whatever trains are going across Siberia, you know, at the, at that time, if you happen to be on one. Yeah, I think the, the article I wrote for Salon was called by my editor on the Trans-Siberian Express, even though it's technically uh, not that simple, as you say. Now, did you, did you get on a, on a ferry to Japan afterwards? Yeah, I took the ferry from uh, Vladivostok to Japan. It, it stopped in South Korea for, for a few hours, and then it went on to, uh, to Japan. Yeah, so this so this is not just one of the great uh, train rides of the world, but it's also a linchpin in a lot of onward travel. Um, and tell me a little bit about it. Did you did you use a service to book your trip, or did you self book your tickets along the way? No, I, I used a, I used an agency that's based uh, in London um, to book the train tickets for the Trans Siberian. And and if I could do it again now, I don't think I would do that. I think I would um, buy tickets as I go. Um, a lot of the reading, a lot of the research that I was doing before I planned the trip sort of warned people away from trying to get tickets the day that you want to leave or a couple days before you want to leave. Um, but I think I would do it that way now, especially since I stopped along the way a handful of times. Um, and what time of year did you do it? I started, let's see, I left Portugal March 1st. Um, and I want to say I got to Moscow on the 10th and probably left a couple days after that. So March, it was very, very, very cold. Yeah. So I think maybe some of those warnings are like people traveling in July or August when, when the most popular segments are booked, do you think? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and, and what was the name of the service you used the, in London? Um, it was called, I want to say it was called Real Russia, but I'll double check. Yeah, Real Russia. Um, and I, and I, I think that that came from Bryn Thomas's, uh, Trans-Siberian guidebook that that's, you know, one of the sort of most useful or most, most used Trans-Siberian guidebooks that you can get. And it's full of a ton of really good information. Yeah, that's a classic. Uh, and I'll put yeah. that in, in the show notes it, that he was writing that book in, I think in the early nineties, cause I had a copy of that well before my own journey. <laughs> um, uh, Lonely Planet also does a uh, a guide that seems to be well uh, reviewed, uh, a guide yeah. to the Trans-Siberian, uh, yeah. though I've never seen it. I took a service called Monkey Shrine um, or Monkey Business. It, it, they specialize in Asia-based Trans-Siberian trips, trips that start on the Asia side. So I'll put oh. uh, so uh, I'll put Monkey Shrine in the show notes and Real Russia, you say? Uh, Real Russia, yeah. Real Russia, okay, yeah. Um, and so you had, before you did this trip, you had, you had the three major options, Trans-Siberian, but also Trans-Mongolian, which I did, or the Trans-Manchurian. Why did you decide to do the, uh, the, the Moscow to Vladivostok one, the Trans-Siberian? Because I'm trying to think now. I mean, when I started putting this trip together, uh, I was looking at, um, there's a really great website called uh, Man in Seat 61. I don't know if you know that train 
Absolutely. Web. Yeah, that's a and that's been around for a long time. That's a that's a yeah, terrific that's, site. I'll also put it in my show notes. That is an unbelievable resource for any kind of train or, or any kind of overland travel, really. Uh, and I was looking at that and it it looked like it was doable to connect uh, Paris with Moscow. And once I did that, then it was only another couple days to connect uh, Portugal to Paris. And at that point, I've covered most of Europe and and Russia. And so it made sense to go from Russia to Japan, if I could, uh, by boat. And the only way to do that is from uh, Vladivostok. So that sort of made the decision for me was, you know, how can I make this as long as possible and get to Japan? And do you remember the cost? Because I, th- yeah. I think, like, I s- just booking the tickets straight up, you can do the trip for like 600 bucks or something. You can take the whole. Yeah. I, I want to say it was around $750 for the Moscow to Vladivostok part. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that sounds about right. The Paris to Moscow was really expensive. That mm-hmm. was, if not as much as the whole Trans-Siberian, then it was close. I think it was like 400 bucks, maybe 450 um, for a much shorter trip. And then, yeah, the the Portugal to Paris was was not very much at all. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, uh, and I think it underscores just how economical it can be to to take the Russian train. That it's not uh, yeah. sort of in that fancier economy of Western Europe. That it, it's actually made to be affordable for Russian people. Um, yeah, and the, the the funny thing that kept happening was that when I would tell Russian people that I that I took a train from Paris to Moscow and that it was a Russian train. A lot of people just didn't believe me that it existed at all. I mean, they they would just never have taken it. It never would have occurred to them to take a train from from Moscow to Paris. And then when I somebody at some point saw the price, it was on a receipt or a piece of paper that I had, and um, yeah, they were just sort of blown away by how expensive that train ride was. So did 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 your ticket have built-in stop-offs or the option of stop-offs? No, no, no. So the way I did it was that I picked a few places that I thought would make good stop off points. I sent them to the agent that I was working with at uh, Real Russia. And then she basically put the itinerary together for me. It was it was really, really easy. Cool. Yeah. No, uh, it was also similarly quite easy, easy through the Monkey Shrine uh, travel agent I did uh, in Asia. And and I don't know about uh, Real Russia, but um Monkey Shrine is used to working with backpackers and, and budget travelers. And so mm-hmm. yeah. it was not only nice to have it organized, but it was just not very expensive. So, um, Yeah, I had a very similar experience. They, they were not – and I kept emailing them questions. Um, should I go here or should I go here? And they were, they were really helpful. It seemed like they'd definitely done this before. It's funny that, that, that some of the Russians didn't believe that you'd taken a train from Paris because a lot of the conventional wisdom these days is that it's pretty cheap to fly places. You know, it was a generation or two ago, you took a train because it was exorbitantly expensive to fly. Now it's actually just as cheap to fly. But I think one reason why this is such an epic bucket list, you got to do it trip, is that it forces you to travel old style. It forces you to sort of feel the size of the earth and Definitely. It's, it, it's sort of the transportation equivalent of unplugging your smartphone and just being where you are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you put it like that because it's, it's as unplugged as I've ever felt anywhere. I mean, yeah, it's very old school. 
What, what class of service did you take across Russia? Second class, all, okay. all second class. Um, yeah, like you, I wandered into the third class a, a few times and uh, found it absolutely terrifying. <laughs> all right, well, let's let's hear some of those details then. So, um, and and I'll, I'll probably skip over the Paris to Moscow leg uh, just because yeah. uh, the yeah. focus is the Trans-Siberian itself. That is over 6,000 miles. You have, your trip was more than 1,000 miles longer than my trip across Russia. Uh, and so it was like, who, who did you meet? Uh, what did you eat? Um, how did you sleep? What was second class like? What was third class like? Can you paint us a little bit of a picture about what the journey was like for you? Yeah, it was, it, it was surprisingly crowded. I mean, every, every second class cabin I was in, and that's four uh, four beds basically, um, was, was full the entire time that I was on it. And like I said, I, I got a, off and on a few times. So I was on several different trains. Where were your yeah. stop offs? Uh, so I stopped in, um, started in Moscow. I stopped in Ekaterinburg and, uh, Irkutsk and then a very small, uh, fascinating city called Birobajan, which is this sort of weird Jewish city that's all the way out in Siberia. Um, and huh. then Vladivostok. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How did so you long, know about the, the Jewish city? I'd read about it a long time ago and it was another thing that had sort of been, uh, on my list of places that if I ever had a chance to get, to get near there, I would, I would go. Um, there's a fascinating story behind it. It was sort of Stalin's gift to the, to the Jewish people in the thirties. Uh, it was the first sort of technical Jewish homeland. It's still called the Jewish Autonomous Region, huh. and the city itself is the is the capital of the of the region. Um, and it is ten or twenty miles from the Chinese border, and about a day's train from the Pacific. So it's it's pretty far out there, uh, and there are not many Jews there anymore. But it's got a a, a fascinating Jewish history. Now you're you're Jewish. Is are you? Is your family Russian Jewish or from some other part of the world? Yeah, part of my family is Russian Jewish, and um, I thought about that a lot because people, I think, assumed. I don't know if you have this where when you travel, but um, it seems like when I travel in in Europe, especially Eastern Europe, people assume that I'm from there. I guess I look um, like I could be. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I don't get that thing where people come up to me and try to talk to me all the time. I think people assume that I'm local and that I don't want to talk. And so I sort of had to go out of my way to, to get people on the train to actually have a conversation with me. Were there other Americans or non-Russians or was it most, most all Russian people on the train? Yeah, it was mostly Russian. I, there's this weird thing on the Trans-Siberian that I didn't think about before I got on it, which is that there's really no communal space on the train to where, where you would meet other people. Um, if they're not in your cabin or if you don't happen to walk by and hear people speaking English, there's really no way you would ever know that other travelers are, are on your train unless, you know, you meet in the restaurant car or something like that. But for the most part, you're in your cabin the whole time or you're standing in the hallway looking out the window. Right. Uh, so, so as far as my trip, I met two people who were not Russian the entire time, and that that's about it. Where, where were they from? They were from Canada. 
Okay. They were two, two Canadian girls. And they, I, I heard one of them speaking English and I said, Hey, are you, um, are you from the United States? And they said, no, we're from Canada. But they told me that I was the first, uh, Western tourist that they, that they had met the entire time as well. And that was pretty far into, into Russia. I mean, that was a couple weeks at least. Interesting. You know, I, I think that's less likely to happen in the summer. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and of course mine was a summer trip. One, okay. one thing people are going to be thinking about is safety. I mean, Russia sometimes calls to mind a little bit intimidating images. Uh, yeah. what was the yeah. vibe you felt, uh, during your time there? Uh, it was, it was okay. I will, re- I remember feeling kind of nervous for the first few hours leaving my stuff, um, just sort of sitting out in the, in the cabin. Um, but I don't think that there, that there's much of a, a foundation for those fears. I mean, if somebody wants to steal my backpack, they'd have to try pretty hard to get it off the, off the train while it's moving. I mean, the, this, this, there's so few stops on these trains sometimes that you can go eight, nine hours without having any chance to get off the train at all. So it would be tough and, and everyone's carrying a lot more stuff than I was anyway. So, um, that went away pretty quickly. For the most part, I felt really safe. Uh, I, I think I felt that people were confused as to what I was doing there. Um, I got the sense that, that a lot of the Russians still don't really get the attraction, uh, that foreign people have for the Trans-Siberian. I don't know if you had that experience as well. Uh, yeah, a little bit. In fact, it comes up in, in my story when, uh, the guy in, in the, uh, in the meal car is like, dude, this yeah, isn't, yeah, yeah. this isn't an adventure, you know, that, right. um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I don't know if there's a corollary in, in the United States of, of something that's just sort of a workaday thing that people endure yet other people superimpose a, a certain romance to it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to think about people in the United States would, I think, you know, be happy to drive, like you said, a convertible across the country. People from America would do that. But I, I don't get this. I didn't get the sense that a lot of Russians would take the Trans-Siberian just for fun, just to be on the train. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, I met, uh, I met a Russian girl in Portugal who, and I told her about this trip, and she basically said, yeah, I, I don't understand why foreigners love the Trans-Siberian so much. She had spent one night on the train, and she said it was the most miserable night of her life. And I was asking her what happened, and she she basically said, "I I don't want to tell you because I don't want to scare you away from it." I still don't know what happened. Wow. Yeah. Well, well I do eventually want to come around to the idea of how much you enjoyed or didn't enjoy it, but I don't want to give that away too soon. Um, yeah. While we're talking about security issues and stuff, were you received? How were you received as an American? Uh, I was received really well. People were people were really interested in talking to me about uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. It came up almost every day. If the person I was speaking to could speak English well enough, that would be the first uh, conversation they would want to have. What do I think of Trump? And, uh, (laughs) and what do I think of Putin? And and so what did you say? (laughs) Um, It didn't take long to figure out that, the I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't want to, to generalize, but the impression that I got was that the Russians I was speaking to seemed to like Donald Trump quite a bit. I think they 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 saw in him something that they see in Putin and they like 
both uh, a lot. Um, I would try to say that I don't know if he's doing a good job for the country. I'm not sure that he's uh, just not in it to enrich himself. Um, luckily, there was usually a, a little bit of a language barrier that I could use to to get out of that conversation. Did, I didn't want to be caught, you know, trying to explain uh, Donald Trump to to a bunch of Russian people. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting time to travel. I remember having this conversation in Namibia last year, uh, and it was interesting how many Namibians uh, thought Trump was pretty cool. I mean, the majority were much more, you know, Obama has African heritage, so the majority were really more interested in him than Trump. But still, I don't know, there's a weird appeal um, for Trump, you know, in, in places maybe yeah. that, that have more of an authoritarian bearing, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did language work? Do you, do you do you have any second? Well, one, you can comment some more on the Trump thing, but I'm also curious to know about uh, what languages you ended up speaking, how your how your English was, if you learned any Russian or Cyrillic. Uh, Cyrillic, I could kind of read beforehand because I had spent a bunch of time in um, uh, the Balkans, and they use Cyrillic in a few of those countries. So Cyrillic was was familiar. But I don't speak any Russian, really. I mean, I learned a handful of words to get by. But for the most part, I would struggle through uh, English or use uh, Google Translate on my phone. I use that constantly to get important points across. And can you do that offline? Yeah, yeah, you can do it offline. And in fact, somebody showed this to me right at the end of my trip, way after it would have been super helpful. But you can use the the camera to... Um, translate anything you can hold it in front of any written document or whatever and it'll do its best to give you a translation so menus and uh signage that looks you know that look important you can you can translate that and that's that's inside google translate that is inside google translate the app yeah yeah okay. and I, I think that there are a bunch of apps actually that that can do that now cool yeah that's another thing for the for the show notes, um, it, it almost seems absurdly that's like cheating or something, but it's certainly something that's sure. useful. <laughs> and it, it felt like cheating, too. Um, but the language was really tough. I don't know. Did you have a, an experience where I mean, you've you've traveled everywhere. I'm sure you've had this, but some countries are harder than others. And, and for me, Russia was was pretty tough. The language. I'm not sure why. I think Russia is a, is a, Russian is a tough language to learn. Now, I I had lived in Korea for a couple of years before I'd been on this trip, and I'd learned Hangul pretty fast. And okay. I realized that being able to read is helpful. So I taught myself Cyrillic on mm -hmm. the train. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't teach myself good Cyrillic, but I could read. I could I could pronounce the capital letters. You know, I couldn't um, read cursive Cyrillic, but I could I could see that Pektapa is not Pektapa. It's restaurant, right? Right, and that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, and I, and that's something I learned in Korea that if, the, if there's a logical, um, phonetic alphabet, then that can help. And so, yeah, my Russian was was non-existent, but uh, the fact that I read Cyrillic was very helpful. And again, to listeners, it that might might sound impressive, but it really isn't. You're just sort of learning a secret secret code. You're learning that the the C is an S, and and that backwards R is not a an R but a YA sound. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, and it's actually kind of fun. I, I think it's a fun thing to do on on the train is to uh, spend a long time translating words from Cyrillic to to English, even if you can't read them. Oh, and you have so much time too. Um, a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, and that's what uh, 
I taught myself Hangul just on long bus rides in Korea. And so the train ride is just the ultimate of, of, of long journeys. Uh, and so that's a great chance to do that. Um, did you meet any Russians that you would consider friends or that you exchanged contact information or anything? Or was it just mostly people that you chatted with in passing? No, uh, I would say, yeah, there were a handful. The, the Russians that I met uh, that could speak English to me ended up being incredibly helpful, like um, getting off the train in Moscow. So so right before the Trans-Siberian, um, there was a Russian girl who, for whatever reason, uh, got a taxi for me and told me that my clothes were not going to be warm enough. And hmm. she was you know, sort of telling me all the stuff I should do in Moscow. Um, and that that sort of happened periodically throughout the whole trip. The, the Russians that could speak English were incredibly helpful. Um, but there weren't that many. The, that I met. So mostly I would say 90% of the people that I was sharing a cabin with, um, just didn't, not only did they not speak to me, but they didn't really speak to each other either. Uh, it was really quiet. Tell me about, tell me about second class in terms of toilets and showers. Were you able to, to bathe during your time on the train? No, uh, I, never saw, I never saw a shower. Um, the bathrooms were, were pretty clean. The, the, uh, Provenitsas kept them kept them really clean. I was only on a, I think only one of the trains I was on locked the bathroom doors when the train was in the station. Um, for the most part, the I don't remember the doors ever being locked. So that might be something that they've phased out of uh, um, the system, sort of the older trains that empty directly onto the track. Yeah, interesting. That was a big that was a big key part of my story. Um, actually, yeah. one thing that I read they're changing that in August they're going to shift to local times on the on the train schedule. Have you heard about this? <laughs> I have not heard about it, but I, honestly, I can't imagine what the experience would be like if you if you knew what time it was. That was sort of the the ongoing fun of the Trans Siberian was never really having any clue what time it is. Um, and and explain why. Explain why. Well, because the trains all operate on Moscow time. So as you get and all the all the train table, the timetables in the train cars give you the times in Moscow time. So um, as you get further and further away from Moscow, like I did, because I was heading uh, to the to the east, um, the times just make less and less sense. But you sort of have to be aware of of both because you want to know when the train is going to stop for 30 minutes so you can get out and stretch your legs or, or, or whatever. But, um, and you're also going into night. You, the day is sort of getting shorter and shorter as you go. So that's throwing you off. Uh, and it's just very, very confusing. And I, everyone seems to be confused by it. The, the Russians, you know, as much as anyone. Huh. Were the trains running on time uh, according to the schedule? Uh, yeah, the Russian trains were almost perfectly on time. I, I can't think of any of them that were, that were late. Uh, the other trains I was on were, were late, but not the Russian ones. Interesting. Well, the, the, the Trans-Siberian route is not, it's not a high speed train as I recall. <laughs> no, I think it averages 40 miles an hour. That, that's not a joke. I really think that's the average speed. No, I, I I remember that 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 um, yeah. well one the land I don't know how it was in the winter I, I'd be curious to know but in the, in the summer the landscape was sort of striking but then it was the same again and again and again and you really feel that it's like I'm going slower than I would be going in a car on this trip. Oh yeah, yeah. you feel the slowness absolutely, and the landscape it changes so slowly. 
it's not really until you get to, and I think in the winter it was probably even worse just because everything was covered in snow. Um, and it's not until you get to maybe past Lake Baikal that the land starts to get a little, uh, hillier and, and more forested. Um, but for the most part, it's just, uh, I mean, I just saw flat snow for days. Did you bring reading or how did you pass your time from moment to moment? Yeah, I had my Kindle. So, um, lots and lots of reading. I mean, it was the most reading I've done in a very long time. And that, that, that part was awesome. <laughs> it was sort of exactly what I was hoping for. Um, no internet, no, nothing to do. You sort of, it takes all of the choices away from you that you would have to make in a, in a day. Um, and you're sort of left to, I mean, like you say in your story, look out the window, take naps, get up and walk back and forth through the, the hall. And that's kind of it. I mean, it really is that simple on the train. I can see this almost being a sub aspect of the bucket list train trip is that not only are you taking a classic world journey, but you can mm -hmm. also all the books you can find 10 books you've been meaning to read for years. And literally, yeah. it's not competing with the trip, you know, that, that literally the train is so slow and the landscape is so uniform. Uh, that it's not like you're wasting your trip by reading books that it actually integrates into the journey itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, the days sort of turn into, um, I don't know, like I, the closest thing I can think of is like what my dog's days look like. You know, you take a lot of naps and then you wake up for a little while, you eat and you read that that's sort of it. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing in, in how simple it is. Um, to do for, for days on end. And it, it got to the point where it, towards the end of the trip, I was really looking forward to getting back on the train if I was in a, in a city somewhere. Um, because it's really, I don't know, it's calming, it's meditative. It's, it's really relaxing not to have to make a single decision. Um, yeah, it's nice for, for sure in that way. Yeah. And the connected age, it feels like the yeah. one way to sort of enforce isolation on yourself. Um, well, it seems like an easy way. I mean, you can hike out into the, the jungle somewhere and you will be isolated. But at the same time, you can get on a train and be relatively comfortable and do it, too. How was the food? Uh, did you eat in the restaurants? Did you bring your own food? Yeah, I, I, I mostly brought my own food. I ate in the restaurant a couple times and it was one of the one of them was was really bad and one of them was OK. The they. Included in the ticket price is one meal, um, and this was sort of a constant uh, problem that I had with the language was trying to they, – they would ask you, I think, what you wanted to eat, and they would give you a bunch of choices, uh, and you would have to make the choice, and I had no idea what they were saying, and, and it was really hard for them to find anybody that could speak English who could explain it. Um, so what they ended up bringing almost every time was this uh, – dish of rice and boiled chicken um and it's they brought it it's in a white container and it's white rice and white boiled chicken and it's the whitest <laughs> meal you've ever seen i mean and i when i met the the two canadians later in the trip we had a long conversation about how white that food was because it's just incredible that, that that they made it like that and i never saw anyone else eat it so i still don't know what what it was or why they brought it to me, but, um, it was not good. 
Uh, well, maybe that's how they got rid of the food that the Russians <laughs> would never order directly. Um, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> and, and also, I'm thinking that's that uh, that's a good pretext to have a little bottle of Sri Racha or some sort of hot sauce. Yeah, definitely. If you're if you're planning a Trans Siberian trip, um, spend a lot of time researching what your food options are. You know what you can buy in the station, what you can buy at grocery stores. Uh, bring as much food with you as you as you can carry because. The restaurant car food is expensive and and I don't think it's very good. And um, yeah, what they bring you is a is a dish of boiled chicken and rice. How how are the Providnitsas? Um, like I had problems with mine. Uh, were yours? Did, were, you, were you on their good side? How, what was their demeanor like? I was mostly on their good side. They were they were friendly to me. Um, they weren't overly friendly, but. Uh, it didn't seem like they had a problem with with me being uh, alive, <laughs> like they do in your story. Right, right. No, they 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 were okay. Um, like I said, it was it was strange in that I didn't get the sense that they were that anyone riding these trains was used to having tourists on board. Um, it seemed very unusual, and so a lot of the treatment that I got, you know. If you go to a place where there's a lot of tourists and people are used to interacting with tourists, they'll they'll sort of treat you one way. And I, I didn't get that sense on this trip. It seemed like I was sort of an anomaly. And it sounds like maybe a little bit of a curiosity as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, curiosity. But nobody, very rarely did anyone try to st- strike up a conversation and ask me what I was doing there. Uh, they sort of just eyed me um, with what felt a little bit like uh, suspicion. Tell me about third class. So I accidentally got into third class once. I gave my ticket to somebody at a station. They pointed me into the car and I walked in and sort of had this moment of panic where I thought maybe I'd accidentally booked a train uh, a train ride. And it was a long one. It was three days or something um, in third class. And what, did, and what was third class like? So third class is, I mean, it's essentially a, a hostel on wheels. Everyone is in an open uh, cart. The, the bunks are stacked on top of each other, but they're also sort of in these weird corners, So I, I think, so they can fit more people. It smells terrible. It smells like people who have been on a train for days and haven't showered. Um, it seemed livelier, though. Oh, you know, I'll say that than, than second class. There's definitely a lot more going on. Yeah, that's something that came through in my story that it was it was livelier and way more interesting and I couldn't wait to get back to first class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was happy when I realized when I found out that my ticket was in fact a second class ticket and I had not accidentally booked uh 60 hours in third class because um yeah, it's too much going on, I think, for for me at that point. Yeah, I think it I think it would get old. It would get old. Yeah, maybe if that's the only way um i had ever done it or the only way i i knew that it would be okay but <clears throat> once you're in second class or first class it's very very hard i think to to downgrade yeah yeah the differences are just so stark that basically yeah. third class is this big open cattle car type thing with bunk beds and yeah se- second class is very very um you know, utilitarian, I guess. And then first class has, has, has amenities. Did you do any first class travel? No, I never, I never did the first class. What is first class like? 
Gosh, it's been so long. And, you know, it's funny, in 1999, I didn't take that many pictures. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's two bed berths, and the beds are more comfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. And, gosh, I think you can bathe yourself, or at least the providences don't yell at you for bathing yourself in the bathroom. Um, yeah. It's just a super pleasant thing. And, and so people who are, who might want to do the read 10 to 20 books that they've always wanted to read version of this first class would be pretty good because it's, it's uh, I think it has good, good access to, uh, well, actually no, we, the meal car, the, the meal cars were shared by first class and second class, but it's just, it's very peaceful. It's quiet. Um, if you're tra- I was traveling with my cousin, so we sort of had the place to ourselves yeah. and it's, it's like living in a cabin, uh, out in the forest, only it's moving, you know? I was gonna say I, I kind of had this idea, and this was the first really long train train ride that I had done. Um, I had done like a couple overnight trains or, or two nights maybe, but this was the, the the real long one. And I had this idea that people sort of hang out in the restaurant car and um, you know drink coffee all day and eat food, and I, I I didn't have that experience at all. Every time I went in there, it was essentially empty. I was almost always the only person in the restaurant car. Um, and the reason that I got that it was explained to me was that it's just really expensive. The food is, you know, four times what it would cost anywhere else. And so nobody really goes in there to, to hang out and they don't let you sort of sit in there, um, and not buy anything. Hmm. So yeah, I, I sort of had this idea that I would be spending a lot of time in the restaurant car, um, meeting other travelers and it just did not happen like that at all. I think that's good for people to know because I think that is the one of the primary fantasies that one has about train travel. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, is is that it's it's like this murder mystery on a train and there's all 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 the characters right there when in fact when you have a cabin berth you spend most of your time there. Yeah, there's really no other place to spend your time. You can stand out in the hall. Um but that's really it. And and the cabin berths uh they, the bottom ones fold up into seats during the day. So if you're on the bottom, you can't even really s- sleep that well because somebody is probably sitting on your bed um, for a lot of the day unless they go up to their bed and, and take a nap, which they do did occasionally. Yeah, good stuff to know about. Well, I guess this probably brings us to the big question, which is did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? What did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? How would you sort of help orient people about the, 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 the joys and difficulties of a, of a, of a ride like this? Yeah, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, I think that it, as long as you're conscious of how little there really is to do, um, and, and you can really put yourself in the space of, you know, 80 hours at a time, you're, you're really not going to have much to do except read. Um, if you can do that and you're okay with it, then, you know, there's probably nothing else like the Trans-Siberian in, in the world. What was your experience? I mean, did you, did you enjoy the train ride itself? I did. I did. I, I, I was pretty young and on the front end of my travels. I mean, I'd, I'd lived in a, in Korea for a couple of years, but it was just so new. And like I said, I was going to Europe for the first time. I'd never set foot in Europe before I took the Trans-Siberian train west. Um, it was certainly boring sometimes, you know, there uh, and there were times when you just have nothing to do but take a nap and talk to whoever yeah. you're, you're around. Yeah. Um, but I, I haven't taken it again. 
But I did take my parents. Two years later, um, I had my parents fly into Beijing, and we took the Trans-Mongolian to Ulaanbaatar. We didn't take it across oh. Russia, but we yeah. used the same service and basically made a little Mongolian holiday, which, which ended up being a lot of fun. Is, is it something you would do again? Yeah, definitely. I would do it again, and I think I would do it um, – I would do it either not, you know, not booking all my train tickets in advance and leaving a little bit more open to, to chance or, or, you know, letting things sort of happen as they, as they happen. Um, or I would, or I would do it start to finish without getting off the train. I, I think that's a very different experience. Um, maybe a little bit more hellish than, uh, than what I did, but unique for sure. I guess that's when you make sure your Kindle is really loaded. Yeah. Um, there are plugs. There are plugs on the on the trains too that you can charge your phone and uh, charge your Kindle and and do all that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, well, in the interest of time, we should probably wind down. I'm curious. Do you have any final reflections or advice uh, for people who might be considering a Trans Siberian train ride? Mm, uh Final advice, you know, it's tough because you could say, know what you're getting into, but it's really hard to know until you've actually spent a couple days on a train without getting off. Um, there's so many resources on, on the internet now that, that have, that pretty much explain everything that could possibly be explained about the Trans-Siberian. Uh, I would say do your research and um, figure out if it's something you you would actually enjoy or if it would be a miserable experience this has been deviate with rolf potts more about everything that was just mentioned including links to the resources mentioned as well as jonathan's book and essays can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate and as always you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com this episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>